Good morning again. As I said, the ushers are coming to take the offering. So if you came prepared to give, you can do that now at this time. Uh, If you've got the ability to with your hands as those baskets are going by, you can flip also to Isaiah chapter 30. That's where we'll be today. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we'll put the verses on the screen. Let me encourage you to, if you can, to bring a Bible with you. It's just so good, especially in Isaiah. We're covering lots of texts at once to be able to get your eyes right in the text and kind of see the beginning and the end and mark it up and stuff. We'd love for you to be able to do that. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can get one at the Welcome Center on your way out. We'd love just to give that to you as a gift because we think God's word is so important and so powerful. Well, before we dive into Isaiah chapter 30, a couple, just a little bit of housekeeping. Number one, I wanted to remind you guys that twice a year we have congregational meetings. For those of you who are members here at West Shore, uh, we vote on important things that relate to the life of the church and the life of the body and budget and those kinds of things. So if you are a member, if you'd mark on your calendar next Sunday, so January 21st, 6 p.m., and make a plan to be here. We'd really appreciate that and be important for us in the life of the church. And I recognize that you just heard that time and you may have put it together that that is in the middle of the possibility of the Eagles and Steelers playing in championship games. And I'm just gonna say as your pastor, that's what DVR is for. All right, so, and if you don't have DVR, make a friend with DVR today before you leave the service and say, I'm coming to your house next Sunday after the congregational meeting. So, just a reminder about that. And the other thing is coming up on the heels of that will be, uh, we're in the season of elder nominations. The Bible prescribes uh, that the church should be governed by a group of men who it calls elders, uh, shepherds, those who lead the church. And there are a lot of qualifications for those men uh, found in 1 Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. I encourage you to check those out. And here's why I say that. Because we are going to be in the season now in the next couple of weeks of receiving nominations for men to serve as elders uh, in the next season of the church to enter a term as elders. And that process begins by you making nominations. Uh, and so we'll be inviting you to make those nominations. I want to invite you to make them very prayerfully to consider those things. Not just, hey, I like that guy. He seems like a nice guy. I'll nominate him, right? But rather to examine uh, those that you would consider nominating, pray through that, look at the scriptures and what it says about the qualifications for someone who serves as an overseer for the kind of character they possess. And we want you to know we put our candidates through a a pretty extreme vetting process. We don't take eldership lightly here at the church because it is a position of authority. And so we, um, we, we do a lot of vetting, both in terms of theological understanding and vetting, as well as just personal vetting. We interview family members and children. We interview coworkers who do not know the Lord and share our faith to see what kind of reputation our elders have with those who are outside the faith uh, and, and many other things. But we just want you, we want you to feel confident that those who uh, step into those roles of authority are being thoroughly considered uh, and prayerfully. And we believe God moves in that process. So That again begins with you making nominations. So we just invite you to be prayerfully considering that as that comes up, we want you to know about it. All right, Isaiah chapter 30. Let me pray before we read that and and just invite God to teach us today. God of all comfort, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of all comfort. You say that you comfort us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. And so I pray that you would make us a comforting community today. I pray that you would produce spiritual giants in this place as we learn to wait for you. We say that it's hard and sometimes we fail to wait well, but would you strengthen us and would you cause us to wait well for you? 
And in your perfect timing, would you bring our waiting to an end that we might see your goodness and magnify you and worship you and delight in you. Help us to do so before our waiting comes to an end and then when it does as well. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a series in the book of Isaiah, and if you were here last week, you heard Jason really just do a wonderful job of unpacking Isaiah chapters 30 through 32 for us. And I wanted to, before we do chapter 33 today, which we're really going to spend all of our time, I wanted to make a connection for you in a verse that Jason highlighted last week, and it was really kind of a pinnacle verse in those three chapters that Jason looked at last week. It's Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. So you can kind of look there, and then you can flip over to chapter 33 here in a minute. But here's what Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says. It says, therefore, the Lord waits, or some versions say longs, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. So what we have right there is a statement, this idea, which I think I find very comforting and very encouraging, that the Lord is longing and waiting to be gracious to us. He wants to do it. Do you see that, church? It's really a statement of desire on the part of God. He desires to do this. He wants to do it. But then we have to ask the question, well, what, what is causing him to wait to be gracious to us? What is causing him to wait to exalt himself by showing us mercy, as we just read? And the end of the verse tells us, it says, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, do you see how he flipped the idea there? Isaiah started by saying, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And then he ends by saying, blessed are all those. Note that he did not say blessed will be those who wait for the Lord. He says, blessed are those are all those who wait for the Lord. So what we can surmise just from that quick little verse is that in some sense, the Lord waits for us to wait for him. The Lord waits for us to wait for him. Now, uh, Jason told us last week that these three chapters that we looked at, Isaiah 30, 31, and 32, are really all about this major theme that comes up again and again in Isaiah, and it's trusting God, trusting the Lord. So he, we're called to trust again. And we saw the context was that the nation of Judah, <clears throat> Hezekiah is king, Isaiah is the prophet to that nation, and they have, they have the Assyrian army who is a huge threat. They are like a swarm of locusts consuming everything in their path. No one has been able to stop them. And they are threatening Judah. Uh, and Judah has chosen not to pay tribute to them, not to, kinda, not to um, come underneath their thumb. They tried to rebel against Assyria. And now Assyria is on the march. And what, uh, what Judah has done is instead of saying, okay, Lord, we'll trust you that you'll deliver us from Assyria, they've made an alliance with Egypt. And they said, we're gonna depend upon Egypt to send us troops and soldiers and chariots. And when they do, then we'll be strong enough to defeat the Assyrians. So we're trusting in Egypt. And the Lord in chapters 30, 31, and 32 said, that's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to make an alliance with Egypt. I want you to trust me. And so... If chapters 30 through 32 were really re, uh, re-inviting us to consider this theme of trusting God, then what chapter 33 is going to do is it's going it's to connect to this idea in chapter 30, verse 18, of the fact that those who trust God wait for him. Those who trust God wait for him. And then it's going to unpack further for us this idea of waiting for the Lord. What does it look like to wait for the Lord? 
So again, those who trust, now it's possible to trust God and not have to wait. Sometimes we trust God and he delivers us from whatever our situation is, whatever our difficulty is. He does it quickly. And it doesn't mean we didn't trust him. It just means that he in that situation chose to deliver us in a relatively quick fashion. But I would say, and I wonder if you might agree, that often God causes us to display our trust in him by making us wait for him. Have you been there? And he says, you're gonna wait. And so we're waiting. We're waiting for deliverance from some difficulty, some relational turmoil, some sickness, some release from sickness into the presence of the Lord. We would love to just be released into his presence maybe and just be done, right? Which is another type of waiting that we do. And so he's gonna tell us in chapter 33, he's gonna give us some insights on because you must trust the Lord and trusting the Lord often requires waiting for the Lord. I'm gonna tell you how to wait. I'm gonna show you what it looks like to wait. I'm gonna give you things you need to know. Here's the thing, the Bible is filled with lessons on waiting for the Lord. I mean, you you could spend a year just examining all the places where God has things to say to us about how to wait for him. So my challenge is, how do you get, how do you touch on all that, right? So what I'm gonna attempt to do is just try and hone in on lessons that are directly derived from Isaiah chapter 33. So okay, here are the things that this chapter specifically tells us about waiting for the Lord. Just a handful of things. I wanna see if we can't answer two questions. The first question is this. First question is, what's the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord? And I'll tell you what I mean by that. What's the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord? And then secondly, how do we wait for the Lord? Like what practically do we need to know, to do, to have in order to be able to do that? So those are the two questions we want to answer. And we're going to look mostly uh, here in Isaiah chapter 33. So if you want, you can flip over now from chapter 30 to chapter 33. And we'll look at that together. So let's tackle the first question, which is what is the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord? All right. Now look at chapter 33, verse 2, because this is really the central verse that gives us the the idea that what we're going to learn about in chapter 33 is waiting. He says this in verse 2. He says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Here's the, most, here's the interesting thing about Isaiah being able to say, be gracious to us, we wait for you. In every other chapter leading up to this one, Isaiah has been saying to the people of Judah, you've got to trust God. Guys, gals, you've got to trust God and you're not waiting on him. You're, you're making alliances with Egypt. In fact, the context of chapter 33, if you want to know what most scholars think, that's so interesting to me is, if you remember this story, essentially, they think that this chapter is written in the moment where Hezekiah, the king of Judah, has realized Egypt is not coming. The soldiers are not coming. And so what he's done is he stripped the gold from the temple pillars and taken all the gold out of the treasury of the temple and he sent it to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to try and buy him off, to say, please don't come and attack. You've already conquered many cities in our country, Please do not come and conquer Jerusalem. Go home. Here's the money we should have paid you. for. Kind of like I made a mistake not paying you off to begin with. Right? Here it is. So he's trying everything he can to essentially get out from underneath this threat. Everything except what? Waiting for the Lord and trusting him. And this, the moment now is one where you can almost imagine, I mean, imagine being this messenger, right? You deliver, you deliver the gold and you come back and you say, well, he kept the gold, but the army's still coming, right? Who wants to be that? You want to sign up for that job? 
right? And Hezekiah is, is spent. I mean, he, he is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And the people are frightened. And that's where we are now. Get this, because in chapter 33, what Isaiah says is, on behalf of the people of Judah, Lord, we are waiting for you. Up to this point, it's been, you're not waiting, you're not waiting, you're not waiting, people. And now he's speaking on behalf of the people to God and saying, God, we are, we're waiting for you. As if to say, look, we tried everything else. And now that they've tried everything else and they're done with that and they realize none of it worked, they're actually going to wait for you now, Lord. They're actually going to wait for you. So I find great mercy in that because how often do I try everything else other than waiting for the Lord to get out from underneath difficult circumstances and God is still gracious to say, even though you weren't waiting on me yesterday, you can start waiting for me today. Even if yesterday, even if right now you are trying to deliver yourself from whatever your difficulty is through some alliance, through just getting enough money stored up in the bank, through having the right you know, relationships of power and privilege, whatever it is that you're looking to, to deliver you, regardless, if that's been the case up to this very moment, you can begin to wait for the Lord now. You can begin to wait for the Lord now. So that, that's what verse two is trying to get through to us. Now, like I said, the first question is, what's the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord? Now, all of us would probably recognize that we have, you've waited before, Right? Everybody waits in life. Everybody at some point waits, right? But the question is, are you waiting for the Lord? And you've recognized that I have a great piece of um, philosophy in front of me here now. It's one of our resident cultural philosophers, Dr. Seuss. And he writes, oh, the places you'll go. And if you've got young kids, you have this book, right? You have this book. I was given this book for the first time in eighth grade by my principal, I remember. She gave it to me and she said, this is for you. I thought I would encourage you. And I, I love this book. It's a great book. But there is one part of this book I do not like. And I'm gonna share that part with you, okay? So don't hear me condemning Dr. Seuss. I like most of what he's got here. But listen to what he has to say about waiting. And this has something to say about our di the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord. He says, you can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, toward a most useless place, the waiting place. You catch what he thinks about waiting. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. It goes on from there, but here's the interesting thing. What Dr. Seuss is saying is enough with the just waiting around. Be a person of action Find the place where the boom bands are playing. Get out there and make your, get, dig yourself out of whatever hole or funk you are in. Figure out how to, through your activity, get rid of the slump that you're in. And you can do that. You don't have to wait. Well, I think Dr. Seuss and God have very different ideas. Because God is often saying, look, here's the deal. There's a lot of people I know that are waiting 
on things all the time. And they're some of the busiest people I know. Some of those active people I know. What God is saying is you need to learn not just to wait, but to wait for me. Now here's an interesting activity, an interesting exercise that you can do if you'd like. I did it this week and found it to be really helpful and a good reminder. You can, if you've got a good concordance or you, you get a good piece of Bible software, you can uh, examine every place in the Bible where this phrase, waiting for the Lord or wait for him or wait, wait on him, where it occurs in the Bible. And if you do that, what you'll find is that in all those occurrences, there is one thing that stands out again and again that God says, this is the difference between just waiting on something to happen and waiting for me. Because it's very very possible to be waiting, but not waiting for the Lord. Would you agree with that? And so he says, look, if you want to wait for me, which is the thing I'm commanding you to do and inviting you to do, and the thing that I've said in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, will bring blessing upon you, that you will be blessed as you do this, then you need to learn to wait for me. And so here's the one thing, and it's not complex, although it is hard to do, The one thing he says that makes the difference between someone who's just waiting and someone who's waiting for the Lord is that the person who's waiting for the Lord demonstrates that they are waiting for him by obeying his revealed word faithfully every day. That they again and again look to whatever God has revealed to be true and right and good in his word and commit themselves to do that thing. So that rather than seek out an alliance with an Egypt, right? Like what's your Egypt? Rather than choose to take the shortcut rather than choose to figure out a way to kind of get around whatever the block is that's preventing you, the person who is waiting for the Lord says, I will choose to do what is right every day. I will choose to be faithful every day. God says again and again, that's the indicator of a person who's waiting for him. In this case, right, in in the case of Judah, it's putting away your Egypts. It's saying, no more Egypts. I'm not gonna look to anything else to deliver me. God is not in the habit of allowing us to believe that anything else could deliver us other than him. He's just not in the habit of doing that. Anytime we have the possible perception that if this thing could deliver me, because we will always give credit to the other thing before we give credit to God, won't we? If there's any way to explain the, the reason for something happening other than just God miraculously intervened, we will give credit to that thing every single time. Rather than saying, that was just God. He did it. I don't know why we do it. I don't know if it's because we don't think God would move on our behalf or if it's because we're too embarrassed in front of our friends to admit we believe that God intervenes in human lives. But when you really sit back and look at it and you go, why would I not just give credit to God that he did that, right? That doesn't make any sense. We will always give credit to other things before often. We just, we just look for that. So the righteous thing in this case, in, in Judah's case, is to not look for another Egypt, right? But Proverbs 20, verse 22, paints this picture of the person who's waiting for the Lord. And it says, the person who waits for the Lord refuses to take revenge when someone does them wrong. When someone mistreats them or, or takes advantage of them, the person who's waiting for the Lord doesn't take revenge. They do what's righteous in God's eyes trusting him. Or how about Isaiah chapter eight, just earlier in the book of Isaiah, where he says, uh, where Isaiah says that the person who is waiting for the Lord is willing to speak the message that God gives them regardless of the cost. Even if everyone else thinks they're a fool, even if everyone else thinks they're dumb, they're not worried about the opinions of others. They are primarily concerned with what God has given them to do and they will speak his message faithfully every day. That's what you've given me to do. What is true, I will speak it. I will say it, right? That's Isaiah chapter eight. 
Just to use a concrete example, right? If you are not faithfully living according to God's word, right, then you can't say that you are waiting for the Lord. You can say you're waiting, but you can't say you're waiting for the Lord. So a concrete example of that, like if you're waiting for a spouse, you're waiting for, for someone to be your partner, you know, through all of life, that husband, that wife, you're saying, oh, I want, you know, I want that. I'm longing for that. If you're waiting for that, right? If you are dating people outside of your faith, that don't share your faith in Jesus. If you are sleeping with people, if you are looking at pornography, you're not waiting for the Lord. You're just waiting. And by the way, you're lengthening your wait, quite possibly. Because the Lord waits for you to what? Wait for him. And when you reveal through daily, faithful, righteous action that you are indeed going to wait for the Lord, doesn't mean that the next day, oh, I waited for the Lord for a day now. Awesome, I'm good. God will, God will now bring about deliverance from whatever, right? The husband, the wife I want, the de- deliverance from sickness or whatever it may be. It doesn't mean that it's just you, you know, put the money in and pull the slot and get what you want. But what it does mean is you open the possibility now that God can come in because he waits to be gracious to you. He waits to show you mercy, right? So that's question number one. What is the difference between waiting and waiting for the Lord? Now, how about question number two? How do we wait for the Lord? And I just wanna give you three insights from this text. And the first one is this. If you want to learn how to wait for the Lord, the first thing and probably the most important thing that this text gives us is to say, look for a greater deliverance than the deliverance you're looking to now. So if you wanna be delivered from illness, there is a greater deliverance even than that. That's not to dismiss the importance of that deliverance, but there is a better and greater deliverance to which you should look, which if you're able to do that, will enable you and strengthen you to be able to wait for the Lord. You have to look through the deliverance you need to the greater deliverance you can receive and have received. And when you do that, when you look through this thing, and to the greater deliverance, it enables you to wait for the Lord. Let me show you where I, where I draw that from this text. So look at what happens. In verse one of, of chapter 33, he says, "Ah, he's talking to Assyria, <clears throat> Isaiah is. And he says, ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom no one has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. In other words, what he's saying to Assyria is your days are numbered. There, you are coming to an end. You may think you're strong and you're ruling over the entire world right now, but you will be destroyed. And those you have betrayed and you will be betrayed. Right now, if you're living in Judah, are you pretty excited to hear that? Yeah, you think? The army's at the gates, y'all. Hearing that is good news, right? And then he goes on to say, if that wasn't enough, in verse 11 and 12, then he's gonna say to Assyria, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, Your breath is a fire that will consume you. In other words, your own words will end up being the thing that destroys you, right? So if you're in Judah, again, that sounds great. That's a temporary deliverance. It's the thing you're looking for and you know you need and you are freaked out and you're saying, thank you, God, for that word. But then look what he does from there because he's not just gonna stop there. He could, he could say, hey, trust me, wait for me. I'm gonna deliver you from Assyria. Don't worry, right? And that's essentially what he's saying in those verses I just read to you but he goes on to point them to an even greater deliverance. Because look at what happens next. 
in verses 17 to 21. He says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. He's not talking about Hezekiah there, okay? He's talking about the Lord. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Judah's a small country. No one ever said about Judah that that land stretched afar, right? So he's clearly talking about something other than just the place where they live right now, that their nation and its deliverance is not the primary thing he's talking about. Then he goes on to say, your heart will muse on the terror. What that means is like someday the thing that freaked you out and made you so scared, you'll look at it and kind of go, huh, Huh. Wouldn't you like to go, huh, to the thing that freaks you out? Right? And then he says, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. He's talking about Assyria there. He says they're gonna be gone. Behold, Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, In other words, you're gonna have parties in Jerusalem. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent. Now here's the beauty of that. He just used an oxymoron. What are tents designed to do? To move, and he just called it a what? An immovable tent. In other words, what he's saying is people who wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, who are constantly under attack and are constantly being displaced from your home, you will have a permanent home. When I bring my kingdom into the world, you will no longer be under threat. Listen to what happens next. He says, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. In other words, you're gonna have these broad streams to enjoy, but the threat of a broad stream is that a warship can travel down that stream and can attack you. And he says, that's not gonna be able to happen. There will be no more warships coming into your country. And then he says, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. And then down in verse 24, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. So all the people who live in this kingdom, none of them will be sick ever again. And then the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Now, I don't know if, you, I don't know if you're catching this, but he started by saying Okay, I'm gonna deliver you from Assyria, so don't worry. And then he goes on as if to say, there's a greater deliverance that you need to understand that I'm bringing about. When I'm gonna establish you and you'll never be moved again, you'll have a permanent home and no one will be sick in this kingdom that I establish. And forgiveness will reign. People's sins will be forgiven. All your iniquity will be done away with. It'll be gone. The land that you inhabit will stretch afar. In other words, here's what he's doing. He's saying, I know that you think what you need is deliverance from this thing that's right in front of your face and it's really scary. He's not diminishing the the scariness of that. But what he's saying is there is a greater deliverance that I'm going to bring about. And if you will learn to set your eyes on that greater deliverance, this thing that you need deliverance from in the short term will not seem so scary. And you will be able to wait for me primarily because the thing that you need for this, I have provided I have already begun to work it out. I have already begun the work of that. One of the things in chapter 30 that I didn't read to you, right after he says, the Lord waits to be gracious for you. And then he says, blessed are those who wait for the Lord in verse 18. Then he goes on in verse 19 to say, essentially, he says, um, I'm drawing a blank now. I gotta flip back, sorry. 
Yeah, he goes on in verse 19 to say, um, the Lord will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry as soon as he hears it. In other words, as soon as he hears your cry, he will deliver you. And you're thinking, that sounds awesome, but I've cried out to God and he didn't deliver me right away. Have you been there? And then he goes on in the very next verse to say, even though you eat the bread of adversity and drink the water of affliction, even though you eat adversity and drink affliction, even though that's where you are, right? So just pause in the middle of that sentence because that's all you need, right? Pause and get what he's just said. As soon as you cry out, God will deliver you. But then he just went on in the next breath to say, you're eating adversity and drinking affliction or eating affliction and drinking adversity. So how can those two things coexist? How can you say that the, when I cry out, as soon as I do it, you deliver me. And at the same time, I'm eating affliction and drinking adversity. I don't get how those two things go together. And essentially what he's saying is, the second you cry out, your deliverance has begun. You may not see it coming to fruition. You may not see it with your eyes, but it has begun. And the same thing, that's what's being illustrated here. Whatever it is that we long for deliverance from, if we look through it to the ultimate deliverance that God has provided for us, we recognize that in Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, he has already begun that work of deliverance. And this is one smaller deliverance in line towards that greater deliverance. But when we understand that this has already begun to be worked out, it's already started the thing you need to be delivered from has already begun. That's when you begin to understand, okay, God is on the move. He's not silent. He's not still. You with me, church? Okay. So let's look at the next thing just in the few minutes we got here. Look for a greater deliverance. By the way, the way to do that, one helpful tool is just to love God's word. Can I say that? Just to love God's word. Listen to Psalm 130. Verse five and six, he says, I wait for the Lord. So there's that idea again, I'm waiting for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In other words, he's saying, I'm weary, I'm tired, I am waiting. And the thing that I need in order to be able to wait is I need God's word to provide hope for me. And he's not saying it as like, I hope it will. He's saying it as, as if it does. No matter what your favorite book is, it pales in comparison to the power of the word of God, right? It can be a great work of literature, but what it doesn't possess is the, the Holy Spirit moving through it to change you. If you will take up God's word, if you will take up God's word, take it seriously, learn to adore it and love it, it will absolutely transform you and it will empower you in your waiting It'll empower you in your waiting. I don't know any other way to help you wait other than to say, go back again and again to God's word because it's gonna point you to that greater deliverance that he is already working and you're gonna see. You're gonna begin to understand his purposes. Your mind begins to shift and you start to see things through a different lens. You start to look at life and the world and everything through a completely opposite lens from the way you used to look at it when God's word begins to be the lens through which you look at the world. It brings hope and peace and joy. It doesn't bring easiness, but it does bring hope and peace and joy. Now, the second thing we see in this text about how to wait for the Lord is that we need to remember that the Lord has good reasons for making us wait. The Lord has good reasons for making us wait. Now, I know some of you are like, he's not telling me what those good reasons are. Right? Like, I've been waiting, right? Listen to what he says in verses seven through 10. 
because he said, wait for the Lord. And then he's gonna paint this really awful picture of how things look in Judah. He's gonna say here, behold their heroes, so the army, cry in the streets. You're not in a good place if your army is crying in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. In other words, no one can leave the city. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon, which was known for its big cedar trees, is confounded and withers away. Sharon, which was known as being this beautiful place, is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. And then, okay, so that's the description of how bad it's gotten. And then he says in verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. In other words, that now, what that now tells us is that God is saying, I waited for just this moment. I waited specifically for this moment when you stopped looking for Egypt's to save you. I waited for this, to which we might respond, why did you wait so long, right? And we have already seen that one answer is he was waiting for us to put away our Egypt's, okay? But how about this? Because some of you I know have experienced this. How about when you've put away your Egypt's, you're not looking for anything else to deliver you, and yet you still are waiting, right? Waiting for a child, waiting for sickness to go away. Or like my friend, Glenn Stewart, who this weekend went to be with the Lord, right? Towards the end of his year-long battle with a brain tumor. You're just, I'm, we're just saying, enough, Lord. Have mercy. He just wants to come home and be with you and be done with this. This suffering seems unnecessary and it seems cruel, right? God and I had some conversations about this. Lord, I don't get it. Just bring him home. You haven't healed him, right? And you're just gonna make him every day wake up and have more suffering, more, really, more again today? This man has served you faithfully for years and years and years for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. I've never met another person of whom I would say it as much as I would say to Glenn Stewart. Just bring him home, like enough. What do you do with that? What do you do when you put away your Egypts and the Lord still makes you wait. I know of no truth better than one found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And I go back to it again and again. After describing great suffering and affliction he has endured, Paul says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friend, I know, I know it's hard. And I know you are in agony. And I know you are waiting for the Lord and you've put away your Egypts and deliverance has not come. And this is the word of the Lord to you. He is making you a spiritual giant in his kingdom. There is not a millisecond of your suffering that is wasted. Every 
millisecond of your suffering in the path of obedience is producing in you an eternal weight of glory, you will be radiant with glory in the presence of our God. When he comes and establishes his kingdom, you will be a giant. You will be a pillar. And I know, I know you don't see it now. I know that you don't see or understand. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. But you must believe. You must believe it's happening. You must believe that for every second that God didn't bring Glenn home and said, you're gonna wait and you're gonna continue to endure the effects of this tumor. And those of us who watched on just said, please, please, just begged God, take him home. Let him be done. Isn't it enough? What else, what other thing could be happening right now that's of value to you that you would cause him to have to linger in this moment when you could bring him home if you would choose? And God says to us, I am producing an eternal weight of glory in Glenn right now. I am doing it. And it is so weighty and so good that Glenn, now that he has breathed his last and passed into eternity, is in the presence of the Lord. Here's what I guarantee you Glenn is saying as he, as he sits there with the Lord. He says, every bit of it was worth it. It does not compare. The glory I have now received, the radiant beauty I have in the presence of the Lord is worth every extra moment with that tumor. Every moment of lingering, every moment of waiting now is it's beyond, this is what he says, it's beyond comparison, the glory that will be inherited. And friends, we have to believe that is coming. We have to believe that glory will be ours. If you're gonna wait for the Lord, you put away your Egypts, and then you wait knowing that you are having in you produced an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. The last thing he gives us here, as he says this, he says in verses 13 through 16, the way I would say it is that we should shout praise. If we want to learn to wait for the Lord, we should shout praise to God because he has given us what we need to receive the greater deliverance for which we wait. Now the thing, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. What I'm going to say is this. The thing you need to see is that in chapter 15, what he says is, in verse 15, he says, Look, he's delivered, and now all the people of God, as they've watched God deliver from Assyria, are shaking because they realize that their God is so holy and righteous that he is a consuming fire, and he consumes all sin and all iniquity. And they realize that they also have sin. And these are God's people, not the Assyrians. And they realize they're overwhelmed by it. And they say, who can dwell? Who can dwell in God's presence, in the presence of one this holy and righteous and pure and good? Surely not I. And the answer comes back. The one who can dwell in God's presence is the one who is righteous. It's the one who does not oppress. It's the one who looks to the needs of the poor. It's the one who obeys me and walks with me. And the right response of God's people, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, has always been to that statement, not, oh, Okay, I can be that kind of person. Got it, I'm good. The right response has always been, I can't be that kind of person. You must save me. And so we have in front of us the great reminder of the gospel from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and it's this. He says, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the very righteousness of God. 
It's what we call the great exchange. And what he's pointing out is the thing that you need, that greater deliverance we've been talking about that we must set our eyes upon, that greater deliverance, you've been given the very thing you need to receive that greater deliverance, to walk into it on the day that God establishes his kingdom or brings you home. And that thing is the righteousness of Jesus. It's your only hope. Your only hope is the righteousness of Jesus imparted to you so that God might receive you into his presence because you could never be good enough. You could never be righteous enough. None of us can. And God has declared, I have done it in my son, Jesus. And if you wanna know how to wait for the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances, make it your habit, practically every day, make it your habit, not just to thank God primarily for the things that are secondary blessings, like a family or a home to live in or you know, uh, food on the table. Those are all good things for which he is to be thanked. But the thing we should thank him for first and most, and I was so convicted of this this week because I don't do it enough, was the thing we should thank him for first and most is that we have received the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we thank him for. Try thanking him for that every day again and again and make all the other thank yous secondary to that thank you and watch what it does in terms of causing you to say, I have received this what I need to enter this greater deliverance and I will, it, I will make it to that place and see what it does for you in your waiting for the Lord to deliver you from whatever your immediate deliverance need is. You with me, church? So we've just said that part of the way we do that is to shout praise to God, right? Part of the way we wait on him is to shout praise to God. So we're gonna close our time together with a song and then we'll be dismissed. So why don't you stand with me? I think our worship team's coming up. I didn't give them enough of a heads up. Sorry, guys. Let me pray as they're getting set and then we'll sing together. And can I encourage you? Sing this like you believe it, yeah? Those who have been delivered in this greater deliverance, they don't sing shy little soft songs. They shout the praises of God. So Father, we are going to declare your worth and your praise and I pray that you would receive them even the words we speak are not worthy of you. You are above them and beyond them and greater than them, but they are what we have and you are so merciful to receive them from us. So draw our hearts to you. Draw our hearts to you. I pray specifically for my brothers and sisters who are waiting for you to deliver them from a hard circumstance, whatever it may be. I pray that you would fill them, fill them with perseverance and strength that they might delight in you. And as they delight in you, they would see that they are growing in an eternal weight of glory. It will be there. Set their eyes on it. Help them to see it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.